0: This is a Soulfire production. Welcome back to Get Psyched, everyone. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today my soul mama, Sally Arnold, is on the show. Sally is a mindfulness teacher, not only to group settings, but to parents and kids in the school systems. She also is just an absolute guiding light in my life. Sally is a sounding board. She is positive affirmation. She is the embodiment of mindfulness, and I am so blessed to be able to call her my soul mama and have her in my life. You are bound to get tons out of this episode, not only about the neuroscience behind mindfulness, but also tips and tricks for things that you can do to help quiet your mind and make those self-critical voices in our head a little bit nicer to ourselves so without further ado enjoy the show and if you enjoyed it please leave a five-star rating and review in the podcast app as it continues to help me get guests like sally on the show enjoy diving in on who Sally Arnold is, how you got to be where you are as a mindfulness and meditation teacher and take it from there. Okay. Well, you know,
1: I, I don't know the answer to that lens, but when I look back, my background, obviously, you know, as you know, is as a nurse. I have a master's in psychology and I have a lot of extensive training in in mindfulness. And, but when I look back in my early career, in my early 20s, my first job was as a pediatric oncology nurse at Stanford Children's Hospital. And I remember... Being with the kids and doing tuck-ins and doing just breathing exercises and imagery with them. And I remember when Pac-Man came out and we would imagine the little Pac-Man <laughs> eating the cancer cells. and And when I look back over my career and then going into OB and and you know coming home to that sacred breath to birth that baby and you know, and um, a fun story and in, in labor and delivery, there was a doctor that... Um, we had different viewpoints, and um, he came in one day, and I had a patient, and she was only three centimeters, and she was throwing F-bombs, and she was hysterical, and she was just afraid. She was alone, very little prenatal care. I can still tell you she was in room 201, and um, just hysterical, and she was just scared, and and so we just kind of hung out for a while, and and then when she was ready, I asked if we could do some breathing, and the doctor came in, and he looked at her at three centimeters, rolled his eyes, walked out, wrote in his chart, and I'll be back later, and When he came back later, she was seven centimeters. And between each contraction, she had her eyes closed. And then she would breathe with her contraction and then close her eyes. And he pulled me out of the room with his very pointy finger and was backing me in (laughs) to the corner, you know, waggling his finger. You had no right to order an epidural for her. And I I just kind of thought, this feels really good. (laughs) And I said, nope, you're right, I didn't. And I didn't order one. And he goes, what do you mean? She doesn't have an epidural? Look at her in there. And I'm like, nope. Well, I didn't even write an order for Stadol. Nope, she doesn't have Stadol either. Well, what did you give her? I said, herself. She had everything she needs inside. to, To grow the baby, she has everything she needs for it to be birthed. And from that day forward, our relationship changed. He just would afterwards, uh, uh, you know, we'd do a delivery together. And on the way out, he'd mumble, good job. I don't know what you do, but good job. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, just because I, I learned over my career in nursing, and I, and I also worked in hospice. And that veil um, from hospice and OB coming and going into this, you know, mm. um, earth school is very, the sounds, the sacredness, the, the breath, you know, coming home to our breath and, and so, you know, how did I get here? Probably kind of bitching and moaning the whole way, but I, I think that I'm right where I need to be, and, and it's so, it's such a privilege to share this work with people. You know, Mm -hmm. it's so transformative. Um, So I think, yeah, my whole, my whole career has just kind of landed me to here and now, and it feels really good.
0: Yeah. Was it because of, your psychology background and degree that you had the breath work or the breath awareness going into nursing? Or where did you pick up that skill to share with your patients? Um, I
1: had my nursing degree before my psychology. My psychology okay. was my master's. So my bachelor's was in nursing. And it, and it's just really the kids, you know, just really listening to people. What, what works and, um, you know, I don't know. It just kind of all... You know, I did a, a year and a half holistic nursing program. And I think that was probably the first time I had actual training, mm-hmm. you know, in the body mind connection and looking at Candace Pert's research and looking at, you know, the burnout stuff, the body mind, you know, and, and, and looking at, I love that that we can look at mindfulness as a neuroscience approach. And for me that's really important because I can walk into an Amish community and as long as you have this three pound gray matter between your ears and a heart and a breath and and, and we can just all learn together. um, The science has really grounded me in the practice Um, but once you get into the practice, there's just, it opens up to so much more.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that people oftentimes breathing is something we do thank goodness it's in our autonomic nervous system and we don't have to remember how to do it every day but it goes by as this unconscious thing and when we start to bring awareness that's the first thing I notice with my clients because I do a lot of parts work with them Mm -hmm. Um, and for listeners that aren't familiar with parts work it's everyone myself included have said it is there's a part of me that wants to do this and there's a part of me that wants to do that and it's like okay yeah, And I think about, um, I frame it as inviting the parts to dinner. Yeah. Let's just right. Ha- right. let them pull up a chair. Yeah. But we're going to let each of them talk. Equally. Yeah. We each get the talking stick and yeah. everyone's going to say their part. And typically, and again, myself included, because that was what was so transformative and so much of my healing was the parts that I was so afraid to give the talking stick to. Mm-hmm. The second I would... And someone would check in with me. It was like, how how are you feeling now? It's like, oh, it's not as scary. Yeah. Or, oh, it's not as bad. Yeah. And I think the breath is our vehicle to that. If okay. I can tune into it and know that it's going to ground me here, I can go to those scary places. Um, and something that I've noticed is being in the body can be really scary for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So when you are teaching this mind body soul gut connection how do you get people to drop in and feel safe doing that
1: um i think first of all i don't get anybody to do anything it's an invitation um i've had only one experience i've been teaching mindfulness for nine years and i had one experience where somebody had a panic attack when we were doing a body scan Mm -hmm. um and so I, I, I kind of set things up a little differently. You know, like any class, when we start something, you know, the invitation is close your eyes or gaze down softly. Because closing our eyes, maybe for some people it's no big deal. But for others, maybe good things didn't happen or not such good things happened when their eyes were closed, right? Mm. Or, or like you said, going into their body, it's not always easy. So there's something about just making this work be an invitation, and people receiving what they need in that moment. And Mm -hmm. I trust that process implicitly. It's like if you and I went to a field, like right now in spring, all the wildflowers, you might pick different ones and I would pick different colors or some the same and some different, um, but we would get what we need. And so in teaching, I just bring um, an invitation. You know, it's just coming home to ourselves and some of us are ready to open the door and here we are. And some of us just kind of want to tap on a window for a while Mm -hmm. and just kind of hover and it takes longer. And that's, that's perfect. You know, there's no expectation. And I think the way I teach is really about exploration before explanation. So there's always just an invitation, take what works for you, and then let's kind of unpack it a little bit. Mm. You know, deepen what we learn.
0: And for the really heady people like myself mm-hmm. um, and loving the science behind it now that I've dug into it too. Yeah. Because I remember being presented with the idea of mindfulness. I was like, it can't just be that easy. It That can't be the answer. Um, and so you talked about body scanning. For listeners that don't know what a body scan okay. is, can you introduce that and then also kind of dive into a little bit more of the science behind it? Okay. Um, so, you know, a, a body scan is just...
1: It's, taking, it's like taking an internal field trip and just noticing what's going on inside your body without any judgment. So it's like looking through, maybe starting at the top of your head or your feet, wherever you're comfortable, and just kind of scanning through and noticing. It's like, oh, getting to your shoulders. There's tension, you know? Oh, just noticing. Don't have to change it. Don't have to judge it. And just scanning all the way through and noticing. And sometimes if we notice at a place Um, Has some discomfort or is unpleasant, and just lending it some breath or some love or light or whatever feels good to us, we're actually able to physically transform it. And so, um, working with the kids, I worked in the schools. I've taught to thousands of kids. They love body scans. That's like their favorite. (laughs) Um, Yeah, in all schools, all ages, body scans are big. So, and then you asked about the science behind this. Um, I think it's important to understand a little bit of the history. Yeah. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, you know, we most people, if they're in this field at all, know he's our founding father. And back in the 70s, you know, he started doing research at University of Mass. And, and they're seeing that patients were, you know, they're it, giving them the program of MBSR, Mindful Based Stress Reduction and noticing that patients were getting better faster. They were requiring less medication. They were having less relapses, especially with cardiac patients. And so they started researching it more and more. And right now there's over 40 peer review articles being published every month on mindfulness. So it's it's pretty grounded in research. Um, But back then, this is, I'm dating myself, but in the 70s, you know, my dad had had a heart attack. And so he would put on his little Adidas shorts and he would open the front door and he'd go out running. Well. You know, that was new, like really running. You didn't run unless a bear was chasing you, right? Like (laughs) it just seems so bizarre to open your front door and just start running. And there was no siren coming after you or a bear or something. And, and, you know, over time we really learned how important you of all people know this as such an athlete that the, that exercise is for the physical body. And then with mindfulness, we now know that meditation and mindfulness is as important for the mind as exercise is for the body, right? Um, and so mindfulness has you know come into MBSR in the in the world of medicine, in psychology, MBCT, mindful based cognitive therapy, um, in corporate worlds, Apple, Google, Yahoo, Pixar, in the governments, Stanford, um, Harvard. Defense doesn't matter your political beliefs, it's in the government. I think we all need to breathe a little more um parenting, which is obviously a big passion of mine, and then in the schools, so mindfulness is pretty ubiquitous because w- we all breathe and 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 you're right it's it's very simple, but that doesn't mean
0: it's easy. mm-hmm, yeah, I think that that is what goes overlooked so mm-hmm. often, yeah, um we touched a little bit on you know how. Sometimes people don't feel safe in their bodies. And so exactly asking someone to close their eyes and go inside. Mm -mm. It's like, excuse me. No, Mm -mm. I won't even sit with my back to a door, let alone close my eyes right now. Right. And it was explained to me. And I had, um, one of my professors, Lauren Gogarty on the show. She explained mindfulness as, as a muscle, as Mm -hmm. gaining reps. Right. And, I know the first time I sat down to meditate, eh, I should say the second time because the first time my whole, the entire time my brain was like, what if someone walks in, you're sitting on a floor pillow, you're crisscross applesauce, (laughs) everyone's judging you, Right. right? Like it was all ego, Lindsay, the whole time. Right. And then the bell went off and I was like, oh, thank God, I'll never do that again.
1: Right. Very common.
0: And then the second time I tried, I really wanted to do it right. This is heady perfectionist, Lindsay. I was like, I am going to meditate. I'm going to do it right. And then my mind would wander to my to-do list Mm -hmm. or the other things I could be doing with this. I think it was 10 minutes. All the other things I could be doing with this 10 minutes. And then the bell went off and I was like, oh, crap, you know. But in that moment, that bell going off, and this is what Lauren explained. She's like, you just got a rep. You took one breath. You you took one breath. And even though it was that I'm supposed to be breathing right now. Yeah. She's like, and those, you know, just like reps in the gym, just like bicep curls or anything else, you get stronger the more you build this muscle. So for, pe- for people that are listening, that are hearing this, like, oh yeah, I've tried it before, or it can't be that simple, or any of these things, just because it sounds simple, like you said, it's not easy and it takes time to build that muscle. What have you found from a parenting standpoint in the mindfulness research Because I can say that interacting with my parents during my teenage years was anything but mindful. (laughs) Right. Right.
1: And I think it's almost, um, it's humbling to put the word mindful and parenting in the same sentence. Because if you've been a parent for more than a week, you know that mindfulness goes out the door. (laughs) And so I think, you know, when I teach parenting, I, I travel with this big old gallon jar of marbles. And I always ask my audience, how many marbles are in here? We just try to guess just for fun. And there's 963 marbles. Why is that important for parents? And I tell them, you know, it's, um, it's a time capsule. Because if your child was born on Saturday, you would have 963 Saturdays until they're 18. When we look at the research, there's this research that I love by Killingsworth and Gilbert out of Harvard, I think 2011. And what they found is that 47.6% of the time, we're not present in our own life. Mm. We're worrying about the future or ruminating about the past. We're anywhere but here and now. And so now your marbles, you've got what, 482 marbles. Don't check me on the math, but it's something about <laughs> it's not, it's half of 963. You know, so now you have a child and you only show up for half their life. And as a parent, that time goes so fast. So that's kind of like the why. Why do we want to show up more as a parent? Because, you know, my, my personal belief is parenting is our most sacred work and our children are our, spir- our spiritual teachers. They teach us things that we didn't even know we wanted to learn or didn't want to learn. Um, and the truth is, like our whole society, parents are are overworked. You know, parental burnout is real. Like, there's research now that talks about it. And, and mindfulness has ways that, you know, by bringing in some of our techniques and our tools and building a mindful toolbox, we can have less stress. You know, parents are seeking more connection with their partners and with their children. And you know, in a world where we stand in front of the microwave and say, hurry up, mm-hmm. you know, we are, and we're more disconnected in this hyper-connected world than ever before. So, um, so for parents, I think it's really important for there to be tools that are user friendly. In fact, all, all of my audiences, I teach, you know, I'm, uh, I work with attorneys, nurses, doctors, social workers, um, you know, all different professionals and general audiences. And I think what's so important, Linz, is is making it user-friendly. Mm-hmm. Because for some people, the thought of sitting for 10 minutes, they'd rather eat rat poisoning. And that maybe taking their breath, and, and whether it's three mindful breaths that will oxygenate every cell in your body, or learning, and, and maybe today I can give you, you know, just so our audience leaves this time just having a few seeds in their pocket. Um, but but having some tools that you can just call on when you need them, mm-hmm. um, you know, we—it's c- not realistic in this day and age to, you know, we can't sit in a cave and, and meditate from dawn till dusk. I mean, we still got to do dishes, right? We still got to—we got to, you know, show up to our life. So how can we weave in um, mindfulness where it fills us? It doesn't take away from who we are and what we're doing. You know, we all have 1,440 minutes a day. So if you spent two minutes, you'd still have 1,438 minutes to worry or get it done or do whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and also looking at right now, we see more, and I know that you're seeing this, and especially with the pandemic, we see more anxiety and depression than I think we have ever seen. Mm -hmm. And working in the schools and the insomnia oh good lordy the insomnia it's ubiquitous it's just everywhere so what if there was something you could do that would change your brain and it isn't in a pill form and it's free and legal right you know
0: <laughs> and for portable. now for now until right. they figure <laughs> out <laughs> to charge us That's for breath
1: true. right um you know so and 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 so often we think of mindfulness as about the breath, but so much of it, it's a sensory experience. So let's say somebody's about to have a panic attack. You know, just by focusing on something, just, you know, looking at a tree and and watching it, thinking about the tree, looking at the color, looking at the direction, multitasking of the brain is a myth. Mm -hmm. And so as you're looking at that tree, You're not being enveloped by the wave of the panic attack. So through mindfulness, where we place our attention, what we focus on grows. So like remember growing up and your teacher would say, pay attention. Hey, class, everybody, pay attention. How often did a teacher teach us to pay attention, right?
0: Mm.
1: How often were we instructed how to place our attention where to place our attention, how to hold our attention. And so, if, let's say, go back to having a, a panic attack or feeling anxiety, you know, if, if I just even just looked at the corner of this table, you don't need to know what I'm doing. You know, I'm just going to notice it. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to talk to myself in my mind about it with this, you know, mindful self-compassion, a kind and loving, gentle voice. And all of a sudden, you know, a, a, a panic attack that's usually around 20 minutes is maybe 10.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe it's 18. Maybe it stops. But there are things that we can do um, through awareness and intention and focus. Um, it's, it's just so rewarding. And, and the whole world doesn't need to know. You know, working with the kids... Um, it's like, I don't want my friends to know, right? Or if you're in a corporate meeting and, and the, you know, the world doesn't need to know, there are things that you can be doing. You can be doing box breathing, just sitting with your hand under the table, tracing a box and doing your breath and the world doesn't need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's kind of one size fits all, right? And for some people, you know, I mean, I've, you know, obviously gone to retreats where, you know, we do meditation 12 hours a day. Um, The first time I went to a a mindfulness retreat, and it was in silence the first, I think, two and a half days. Um, I hated it. Absolutely hated it. And I'd look around the room, you know, and everybody's all lined up. There were 60 of us from around the world. It was the year-long with mindful schools, the year-long certification program. And, you know, people from China and France and the Yukon and, you know, all around. And we weren't allowed to talk to each other for the first two and a half days. And we were in silence. We had a roommate. (laughs) <laughs> and we ate meals together. It was so weird. I hated it. And we'd sit on these pillows. I don't like that either. And and I'd look around the room. Everybody's eyes are closed. And they look like they're so peaceful. And they look like they're in silence. And I'm sitting there and loud. Like if I close my eyes, it might, my mind amps up. And mm. in the beginning, I just wanted to run out of my body, run out of the room. There was nothing. I came to the wrong place. This was not going to happen. Right. Two and a half days later, I was the last person to speak, because I found that sanctuary inside, and just, just tapping into it a little bit, made me know I wanted more. You know, when you think about like, um, like the ocean, you know, when it's really, really choppy, and you know, like the Titanic, it's crashing in the waves, you know, and, and if a, in a if you're in a boat and. The boat doesn't need, you know, they drop an anchor. So the boat goes one way, but the anchor pulls it back. And the, and the ship goes the other way, but the anchor, even though it's smaller, pulls it back. That's what our breath is. It's mm-hmm. our anchor. And by coming home to our breath and practicing it, we're anchoring ourselves back into our body. And we do just whatever's comfortable. For some people, it's, you know, this is, feels really good. And some people, it's like, oh, it's a little scary. And just do a little bit. Um, as a, a concept I came up with a few years ago. It's called the Albi Principle. And Albi A-L-B-I-E, stands for a little bit is enough. Mm. You know? Um, we have a culture where, um, it, you know, look at social media. It, it's like a highlight reel and everything's perfect. And, and I think that that really dis, just disconnects us and... Maybe if we could give ourselves a little bit of permission to just start where we are and do a little bit, and then it feels good and and a little bit more. And then it's like, whoa, this is kind of fun. You know, we're having that toolbox of different tools, different techniques that wherever you are, just try them on.
0: Yeah. What are, because like you were saying, we still have to show up in life. And there are times where it would be really nice to be just paying attention to my breath or sitting in the quiet. And that's not reality for a lot of us a lot of the time. So what are some of the things I've heard? Walking meditations, you know, and even just practicing breathing when you get to a red light or things like that. Right. What are some... Like you were saying, some tips and tricks that people can take away or start implementing even the smallest bit of practice to meet them where they are now.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I think what I want to do is explain, just so we're, we're on the same page, is that when I think of meditation... Not just me. I mean, this isn't just something that I make up, and I make up a lot of things. <laughs> but, but there's like for, there's formal meditation and informal, and formal is you know defined by five minutes or more of a walking meditation, a laying meditation, um, a sitting meditation. More of a formal practice. It's done regularly, like on a daily basis. You know, and maybe in the same room, same ritual. Light a candle or open a window or whatever um informal is my favorite it's just real life daily meditation and it's just kind of you know noticing where we are and what we need in the moment because when we think of mindfulness you know what does it mean and john kabat-zinn has a very formal beautiful definition but i think to simplify things it just means showing up in this moment just as it is you know with a little curiosity compassion kindness and, that, and that's enough. And so going through our days, as we bumble through our days, there's going to be times that we get uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, what can we do? We know that taking three mindful breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth is enough to oxygenate every cell in your body. It's like a mini vacation. Um, that's probably the easiest and the most portable, and user-friendly thing that we'll ever have. And and so what, Why? when is that simple technique powerful? It's during transitions. I was teaching a, a parenting class, and I had a, a dad. I was impressed by his height. He was six foot seven, and he was a um, co- contractor, and he had a crew of 70. And he said, um, he had just this ep- beautiful epiphany. His hands were splaying, and he was saying, I realize that I treat my crew of 70 better than I treat my own wife and my own children, and I didn't even know it. And he says, and when I come home at night, I just know I'm going to walk into the house, and there's going to be chaos, and the kids, and the everything, and you know, and just blaming things. And, and so as we worked on our series together, this group, um, we came up with... Um, techniques that we want to try during transition times. So when he would drive home at the end of the day, he had actually written a little tag in his his mirror, and it just said, take three. And he would pause and take three mindful breaths. He said it was unbelievable that he would open that door, and it was like walking into a different house. Mm. The chaos wasn't happening. Things settled, and the more he regulated himself, the more it made a difference for his family. You know, like, you know, as a, as a parent, we're a surrogate nervous system to our kids, right? So yes. if we want any change to happen, we don't change our kids, right? We, we change us. And and that's where just coming home to ourselves, um, you know, it, it's very common um, stopping at the stoplight. Um, But I think even more than a breath technique is... It's just the noticing of how, how do I feel right now mm-hmm. where do I feel right now? You know noticing our thoughts um there's a there's a course I, I teach called M- uh, Mindfulness as a path to resilience and and mindfulness and resilience are learned skills, and we talk a lot about our breath um, and we come into this world alone. And we end this world alone, and this time in between is we're intended to be our steadiest companion. And what brings us into our world is our breath, and what takes us out is our breath has ceased. And so, you know, our lungs expand and contract twenty thousand times a day. How often do we notice? You know, and and sometimes when we're stressed, is our breath shallow? Is it fast? And and mindfulness is just being about being mindful, like noticing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going into a meeting and this is a big one and I can feel my heart racing and my, my breath is maybe a little shallow or a little fast. Take three, take three mindful breaths. You're going to reset it, you know, and we talk a lot about our thoughts. Um, I don't know if if you're familiar with the research on thoughts. I think it's fascinating and I argued with it for years, but I was wrong. That 95% of our thoughts are repeat. hmm Eighty percent of our thoughts are negative. That's kind of tough to hear, huh? Right. But that's because when we know better, we do better. And so, if we're not aware of our thoughts, we can't change them. And and when there's a really cool study that, that goes after that with from Cornell University that, you know, seventy nine percent of the people who's had negative thoughts are worried about something. That if seventy nine percent of the time it never happened. So we worry about things that aren't even happening. Right. Like who's the driver of our, of, our, of us, right? Are we a co-pilot to our life? You know, are our thoughts the pilot? And having that mindful awareness of thoughts is so transformative because it's like we start listening to that voice and we believe it. And then the truth is just because we have a thought, it doesn't make it true. Right. And perhaps we could tell a new story because our thoughts dictate our emotional state. And sometimes that's not always in our best interest, right? And sometimes we notice that our thoughts might sound like, bless her, but mine and my head, they sound like my mother sometimes, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and it's like if you were to take your thoughts out of your head and morph it into a person and sit next to them, would you even want to go out to lunch with them? You know, and and thinking about, you know, with, we have, what, 60,000 thoughts a day. How many of those are kind towards ourselves? Right. So, you know, ways that we can bring mindfulness, just weave it into our life. There's so many. But just noticing with, with just curiosity, ooh, I've had that thought before. Ooh, that's one of those negative thoughts. I've had this a lot of times. You know, the other day I was thinking about something and, and it wasn't very positive And I thought, hmm, Done. I'm done with that thought. Of it's I've had it enough, but I would keep having it, you know, like a hamster wheel, if I wasn't aware. Right. And 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 we can't change what we don't know, and we know better, we do better. So it's just making tiny little shifts, and and you know, one of my teachers, Chris McKenna, always t- said, "small small changes repeated over time make a lasting dis- difference," and Aristotle said the same thing, right? So, truth is timeless and. There's something about just making small little switches in our life and you know it makes such a huge difference.
0: Are you familiar with Joe Dispenza's work? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm well I'm fascinated. Midway through You Are the Placebo right now. Yeah. Um which any listeners that feel compelled to pick up the book, I please do. very much encourage you to. Um but one of the things that really resonated with me because, and I've said this on the podcast before, we're sitting here in Sonora. I had no idea how many of my thoughts were not my own, Mm. were my cultures, Mm -hmm. were my environment. Right. And then I left Sonora after being here my entire life and moved to Santa Cruz where your environment and the thoughts around you and the narratives and the stories could not be more polar opposite. (laughs) Right. And Joe Dispenza talks about it as um, the river of change. Mm-hmm. And there's two banks on a river, right? And one is your your old thought patterns, your old stories, your old narratives. And on the other side is this new way of thought or or curiosity or an openness to different thought. And then you start making your way through the river. And it's tumultuous. And you might not know how to swim. And the bank that you just came from, although feels a little bit muted or dark or dull or something that you wanted to change feels a whole lot more comfortable than this river now. Right. And there's a lot of people in your life standing on that bank, ready to throw you the life preserver, ready to say, yeah, because your change is uncomfortable for me too. Absolutely. And you making this change may or may not pull me into the river with you. And I might not want to be there. I might be more comfortable on this bank. So, with people who are interested with this, with are saying, how can I change my mind? Where do I find this courage to change my mind? What might you say to them if they're enduring that river? Mm-hmm. And they've got those people in their lives saying, but I've, I've labeled this box, Lindsay, and you act this way. And so when you, don't, when you act outside the box that I've labeled you, that's uncomfortable for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. What do you say to those people?
1: Thinking here. You know, you wouldn't be in that river if that wasn't exactly where you needed to be. And our ego keeps us safe. There was I think it was in, it was many years ago, it was in I think Colorado, there was a zoo, and it had a tiger, and it had a really small cage and people, You know, we're really upset because the tiger would walk six feet to the left and six feet to the right, six feet to the left, and it would just paced. And it was so sad to see this beautiful Mm -hmm. animal back and forth. So they raised a lot of money and they built this gorgeous habitat. And there was a big celebration and they, you know, set the tiger free. And what did it do?
0: Continued to pace.
1: Right, six feet to the left and six feet to the right. And and that's kind of what our ego does. It keeps us safe. But wisdom says you're always safe, no matter where you are, right? And um, even not knowing how to swim and being in the water, if something has called you to be in this place, it's, it's really just trusting that you wouldn't be there unless you were meant to be there for some reason. Because you've outgrown that other bank. It doesn't serve you. And yeah, change can be uncomfortable. But not changing, I think, is even more uncomfortable. And 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 suffering, you know, what is suffering? Suffering is just wanting things to be different than they are. But I think for some people, suffering is wanting things to be as they've always been. Mm. You know? And um, yeah, I think that if, if, if people are willing to just Get their toe in the water and say, I can do this. I can try this. You know, oh, oh. I would just, I would say, I don't know if there's a right thing to is to tell people. I would just say, find your breath, take another one and keep going. You know, one breath at a time. Because going back, I don't know that it serves us. It might feel familiar, and and safe is kind of an illusion mhm so you know it, it's kind of like the chameleon if it wore its same you know skin all the time it would never grow and it it would be crusty and stuck mm-hmm. right and sometimes we get crusty and stuck and and we just got to shed it I don't know if that
0: makes sense totally no I was just like ew yeah there's nothing about being crusty or stuck that sounds appetizing no
1: but you have to go through the uncomfortable of shedding that skin for the bright self to come through
0: yeah when we start to I was explaining this to someone else and um exactly what you were saying taking that that internal inventory Mm -hmm. of what is happening in my body right now? Am I acting out of reaction? Mm -hmm. Am I acting out of a story that I've been told? Um, And I related it to public speaking. And I said, you know, my whole life, it's been fed to me that it's vulnerable and scary and something to be feared. Mm -hmm. And I had my first public speaking event. It was, Two years ago now, it just popped up the other day that it was that long ago, but um, I was getting ready to go on stage and I felt this tightness in my stomach. And in that moment, I was like, wait a second, like this isn't fear. I felt this tightness before and it's butterflies. It's, and I started just like Rolodexing through my head or like, when are all the other times that I've had butterflies? And it's, you know, that first date. Right. Or when... When the guy gets the girl in the movie, you know, and you see all these things happen. And I was like, this thing that I had feared for so long, when I cued into my body was like, no, you're excited about this. And maybe those butterflies are flapping around because this means a lot to you and it's okay for it to be important. That doesn't mean it has to be scary. And I think our body has this deep, deep, deep wisdom that we don't give it enough credit for because we've got this... Like you said, this gray matter rumbling around in our skulls. That's done a lot of good for us, but also gets in our way quite often. Yeah. So if people wanted to work with you or get their hands on your material or your classes or your offerings, where would people go to find you?
1: Mm, Thanks. Um, My website is Mindful Compass. Um, It's just www.mindfulcompass.com. That, um, I teach a lot of different programs. I work with you know a lot of parents, hospital staff, nurses, doctors, social workers, um, general audiences. I think you know, anybody with an, an open heart willing to want to get to know themselves, you know, mindfulness, I don't think is about improving yourself or making yourself better. I think it's really about befriending yourself. Mm. And so I see my role as um, just kind of a companion walking you through it. Um, reminding you that you're safe and you can do this, and and then bringing in you know the neuroscience-based stuff. Um, the program that I teach for one-on-ones is called Awaken Living, and Awaken Living is really just learning. Um, it's an eight-week program, and we do one-on-one, and um, you know some people have wanted to keep going, and it's just kind of like coming home to ourselves. And I think a, a big piece that we haven't talked about that I'm so passionate about, Lynn's, is self-compassion you know the research of Dr. Kristen Neff or Dr. Chris Germer and it's it's all science based solid research about um, the power of self-compassion and you know like those 60,000 thoughts that we have a day how many are kind towards ourselves and what if we started to treat ourselves the way we would treat other people and mm-hmm. just simple ways that we can befriend ourselves and when we look, if we were to put all the electrodes on our head and, you know, get signed up in a lab and, and really look at our, our, um, our data, we see that we can really make changes just from the way we speak to ourselves and the way that we, you know, we can be compassionate. You can be judgmental or compassionate, but you can't be judgmentally compassionate. Yeah. And, and we want to be compassionate to others, but compassion to others is, is not complete without self-compassion. You know, we live in a culture of you know, and also being an athlete of self-esteem. I mean, you got to be the best, and you got to be the fastest, and you got to be. But only one can be the best, and only one can be the fastest. But self-compassion isn't competing. It's it's allowing us to be just as we are, where we are, and that's when we can go farther, right? Um, so so thank you for asking, Mindful Compass. Um, if if. Are there any listeners um, who are parents? I have a book that was put out this year or this last year um, by Penguin Random House called Mindfulness Activities for Kids and Their Grown Ups. And I I feel kind of like a hypocrite in a little way saying that it's my book because it's not really mine. You know, working with the kids, these are all kid-approved activities. They are based in neuroscience, but it's about small, tiny ways to connect with your child and it's not to teach them mindfulness it's not to do it to them it's just a shared experience just from you know simple tuck-ins to making a calm jar or a peaceful corner in your home or just some fun easy games you know a mindful bite what does that mean as a family mm-hmm. um so that's kind of fun that's geared for kids you know ages what, three to seven and it's at target or amazon or anywhere i think it's on my website um Yeah, I just really want to encourage people to just to be open to maybe things don't have to be so hard. You know, this last year we've all lived in this collective vulnerability and there's this part of me that feels like the world had to fall apart for humanity to come together and for us to remember that sometimes we all hold our breath and sometimes we all get scared and sometimes we all want to just stay in that crusty skin because it's safe and familiar um but but we don't have to and there are options and um what I'd like to do are we wrapping up
0: don't take as much time as you okay,
1: want. okay well I want to give them my favorite exercise do it okay so all right you guys so here it is um f- full confession as a nurse I have white coat syndrome that means I am petrified of doctors um petrified to um be in a small doctor's room, in a hospital, you name it, and it's really, if you're out there as a nurse or a doctor or a hospital person, really common with hospital staff. So white coat syndrome is not very compatible to getting your blood pressure taken, right? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> they put you in that room and it's its so funny and and I wrestle with it because sometimes like, you know, I mean, all the doctors that I've gone to, like you um, interviewed Dr. Burkini and she's my doctor and like she is a rock star of a human being, not to mention how she practices you know functional medicine and um and she's so gentle about all of this but i could be in my car my heart rate is 62 and i can be in the office and they put on that pulse ox that reads your heart rate and it's 118 (laughs) and i know it i know it i know it i know that i'm fine i know that i'm safe and then i get mad and then it makes it worse but i have a hack for you I got it figured out Let's hear because it. it's a mindfulness um, exercise. But now I can have low blood pressure and low heart rate. <laughs> so, but it's it's also neuroscience based. So I wish I had a fancy name. I call it on my slide. It's called "Exhale to Overcome Stress." But if you think about it, when we breathe in, um, our heart rate increases. When we breathe out, our heart rate decreases. Right. Our in-breath is neurologically tied to our stress response. So let's say somebody, um, we're driving here, and a deer, you know, jumps out. We live in the mountains here, right? And a deer jumps out, and you go, (gasps) right? You take an in-breath. You take a short in-breath. It's tied neurologically to stress. Now, what if, you know, somebody comes up, and it's been a long Friday, and they start to rub your shoulders, and you go, (sighs) right? Our exhale... Our heart rate, you know, um, decreases, and it's neurologically tied to the relaxation response. Mm -hmm. So all you have to do is make the exhale twice as long as the inhale, and you've hacked your brain and your body, and you don't have to have white coat syndrome anymore if you're afraid to get your blood pressure taken. So so here's what that looks like. So I have people breathe in to the count of three and out to the count of six, into the count of three out to the count of six. And doing that six cycles is about a minute. You can do it for five minutes. You've just like transported yourself to another planet. Yeah. You're That's beautiful. <laughs> you're in the cosmos. But, but, but real life, you know, we want user-friendly. We want small bites that work, right? So even if you can take three breaths into three out to six, and it doesn't even matter if it's three or six. Maybe it's into two out to four. Maybe it's into four out to eight. What matters is that your exhale is twice the length of your inhale. Mm-hmm. And just by doing that, you're relaxing your entire physiology, your body, your mind, your spirit, and you feel good.
0: It is so funny that you say that because speaking of Dr. Brocchini, I went and did a bu- a bunch of blood work for her. And I'm not a fan of needles. hmm by any means. I don't know that people are, maybe you are, I don't know, maybe phlebotomists out there really dig them. But I went to go get my blood drawn and I told the woman like, Hey, I'm not going to look, I'm not super fond. And as she was about to, you know, start drawing blood, she's like, okay, big breath for me. And I exhaled and she's like, no, no, big breath for me. And I was like, I know I'm relaxing. (laughs) And I was like, little, little trick for you. Yeah. Maybe have your Your patients exhale when you when you do this, and she's like, "Why?" I was like, "It calms you down a little bit, right?" (laughs) And you know, by that point, now we're talking, and blood was being drawn, and everything was good. But it makes me feel very good to know that there's some science behind my (laughs) my madness. Yeah,
1: (laughs) you're absolutely right, and and I think that that's what's so validating about mindfulness, is that it's. All based in science, and and here's what you know. Um, I have been boycotted in the schools. We live. I mean, as you obviously know, we live in a rural rural community, and and I did have a school that was convinced that I was teaching um, a form of Buddhism where we were going to open brains, and people were the children. We were going to chant, and the devil would come in. Oh, I mean obviously, was, yeah. Right. It, it was. It was really. It well. It was really confusing to me, and, and I met with a mom who was tape recording my class um, when I was teaching her daughter, and, and I, I went outside with her, and I just said, you know, I appreciate the, the way you show up for your daughter, that you're a parent who cares, that even though I don't agree with you tape recording our class, I, I appreciate that you care so much for your child. you know, And is there anything that you've seen that you don't feel comfortable with? She goes, no, but I read it on the Internet. You're going to start chanting. And I said, no. And I, and I explain the difference, and, and here's what I want to leave people with is, what is the difference between, um, well, not even mindfulness and meditation, but for people to understand that mindfulness is a neuroscience-based practice. Anything that's going to be religious isn't going to change. So whether it's the Quran or a Bible, it's a sacred script that is what it is, and it's going to be that way for thousands of years, right? It's not going to change. Whereas with mindfulness, we do have 40 new peer review articles every month. It does change. It's fluid. It's science. So what we know now is really exciting. But what we're going to know in 10 years is even more exciting, right? So when we look at the difference between mindfulness and and some people, I think it's important to know what it is as much as what it's not, especially for us being in a rural community here. There's some misperceptions about what mindfulness is, and it really is about self-regulation and emotional intelligence and coming home to our, our our breath and our awareness and our focus and our heart. I mean, just putting your hand on your heart, you know, that increases your oxytocin and it decreases your, you know, your stress hormones, your cortisol. And um, and so, yeah, I just, just want to clarify because there's always that one person, and if one person thinks that another does too that that mindfulness is a science and or at least that's what i teach it as and and it and it's a one it's not one size fits everybody but we all have that breath and even though it's simple it's okay that it's not easy we just try again and sometimes it feels really good and sometimes we hate it and that's okay you know we we are where we are um so i just encourage people life is hard right um so let's gift ourselves with a few mindful breaths here and there. And and if you're feeling that stress, into three, out to six. And now we know why.
0: Oh, I think that is the perfect place to leave people. And I know you gave them a bunch of resources and ways to find you. So I will make sure to link it all in the show notes. It'll be easy and clickable and be able to find your book and your website and everything in between. So Sally, thank you so, so much for giving us this little dollop of mindfulness and i feel like we can go into so much more you'll have to come back on
1: thanks linds it's the the pleasure and the honor is mine and i appreciate it and um, thank you guys for listening well wishes